you know, you ask people how they are and most of my friends are fortunate enough to be able to work inside their homes and everyone's just screaming, I'm so lucky, but like also they might've been crying all day. <laughs> if we're so lucky, then we must have some leverage to do some shit that we're not doing right now. Welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what is going on right now. The Feminist Present comes to you from the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research. I'm Adrian Dobb. And I'm Laura Good. We're going to talk today to Gia Tolentino, who you might know from her work at The New Yorker. You might also know her from, you know, there were like a few copies of her book, Trick Mirror, that were sold. I think a few people read it, right? I think if we don't push this thing hard, it's not going to make it. It was really too bad it didn't get reviewed extensively, you know. Or promoted by popular former presidents. I it's, know. You know it's, it can be rough. Poor Gia. can be a tough business. It's a very tough business. But fortunately, <laughs> Gia still had time to talk to us as she was multitasking as as ever, sheltering in place and gestating a human baby, from what I've been told. Well, I mean, you know, she's in many ways the voice of her generation. She's written so widely about feminism, about race, about education in this country. So we obviously went to the first topic that comes to mind when you think Gia Tolentino. And that topic is food. <laughs> that topic is food. It was a pasta-heavy conversation. We talked about food as it relates to cannabis and pregnancy and socialization and... Greasy pizza. Greasy New York pizza, family scripts and structures around food. There's a lot in there. Well, before we get to that, we have a new feature for you called Tweet of the Week. Drum roll. I mean, I guess in this case, can I break the rules this time as we introduce this feature that has no rules yet? Can I break the rules the first time? Uh, sure. In what way? Well, I guess this is not like... The tweet I'm referring to is not so much a tweet as a whole genre of tweet. I'm ah. looking, in this case, at a tweet that has two pictures of Donald Glover, one in Community, looking very young and fresh-faced, and one I in his music well. video for This Is America, with a very different sort of emotional expression he's telegraphing us. And the tweet says, I personally believe it's really cool how we all went from baking banana bread to learning how to abolish the police in a matter of weeks. Yeah, there's a really funny one I recall about what the fuck was in that bread y'all were baking? Mm -hmm. Well, it's like, yeah, what was what was in this bread? It's been three months and we were all talking about baking and now we're all like FTP. But I think that's just what 2020 is, right? Like anytime you record anything in 2020, you create this little time capsule. And I think it's fair to say that our conversation with Gia, which took place several weeks ago, Ago, just as everything was getting rolling in Minneapolis, belongs a little bit more to the sourdough starter era of COVID season and a little less to the abolish the police era. So if you're wondering why we're not talking about this like glaringly obvious historic uprising, it's because we recorded this before most of that had taken place. Yeah, I think that's right. Though I think our conversation was also kind of about the transition between those two, right? Like how we got from bread baking to fist shaking. I think thinking about that transition and that tension is really important from a feminist point of view. I mean, we're always here to talk about how the personal is political. And right. it's totally awesome that people are protesting and being loud and public and political out in the streets. But at the same time, we can't dismiss the private and the housebound and the domestic and... 
caregiving and these are old and deeply gendered tricks of the patriarchy to make us think that those aren't important things to examine and talk about. So we're really here to hold some space today for food and pleasure and joy and care. And those are all part of the story too. And that's what our conversation with Gio was about. Wonderful. Well, without further ado, thanks for tuning into The Feminist Prison. And here's us talking to Gia Tolentino. Gia, where are you in your eating day? I just had my uh, mid-afternoon sandwich. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm between the third and the fourth meal of the day. Fantastic. (laughs) Killing it. What kind of sandwich was it? It was pretty basic. Did a little like toasted, whole grain bread, Mm -hmm. sharp cheddar, turkey, avocado, sliced apple, sliced cucumber, and whole grain mustard. Delicious. It was pretty good. And my, my big sandwich innovation in quarantine, I think my boyfriend has always done this, but it seemed so superfluous before and now I'm thinking I'm going to do it forever. He just cuts his sandwiches in triangles, which honestly, it's a huge move. They taste better. They're more fun to eat. Wait, be detailed. Do you mean triangles like you cut the sandwich in half from corner to corner? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. As opposed to a bisecting rectangle. Oh yeah. Not, not quarters. Okay. That's what I I was like. Do we have two sandwich halves? Yeah. I think with grilled cheeses, I have experimented in the double rectangle, but I think I like the because I think it, it maximizes the middle, right? And that's mm-hmm. and that's the best part. Totally. No, I, I was asking for specificity because my kids are like incredible. And this is probably a good practice for you as you prepare for motherhood. My yeah. kids are like incredibly yeah. specific about like, I need eighths of a sandwich today or I need like halves cut in triangle. Like there's a whole subgenre. <laughs> uh-huh. How has meal prep been for you with working at home with your kids? fucking terrible. I mean, it's been awful. It's so bad. I'm so sick of my own kitchen. Like I'm a pretty good cook. Like I have a full suite of recipes. I've been doing this for a while, but I'm sick of my own cooking the way I'm like sick of my own dance moves on a wedding dance floor after like 45 minutes. Like I don't (laughs) want to see any of my own tricks anymore. I know. I've tried introducing new palettes. I was like, okay, you have to like really think international right now. And even still, I'm so sick of my own shit. (laughs) Totally. Do you have comfort (laughs) foods that's like stuff that your mom made or like what are your comfort foods? One standard that I think we can all relate to is just giant bowl of like cacioe pepe type pasta. Like, but I think, you know, in terms of I grew up eating a lot of rice, like all Filipinos. And I think a basic sort of chicken and rice meal is always very comforting for me. And like a very large breakfast, I think that's another big one for me. I've been making a lot of blueberry pancakes nice. with sausage. This sort of weekday pancake nice. is like, woo, luxury, you know? <laughs> Midday pancake, there's real magic in that. Do you find yourself better or worse at planning, given that we're all sitting at home mm-hmm. as you're rattling off these dishes? They're all kind of ones that you can put together in the spur of the moment. I had a bunch of projects sort of like more pickling, more marinating, and I never get around to it. I'm just always like, oh shit, it's like 7 p.m. I don't have anything. 
just put a bunch of stuff. I want the spur of the moment. Do you find yourself able to plan your food or do you just kind of do it out of the moment? I've been doing a mix of both. I think I do Sundays for long-term projects, you know, letting dough rise or my boyfriend's been pickling a lot. I'm not a pickler, but he loves it. I've been making huge batches of granola, you know, things I would, I would never make my own granola in real life, but actually this has made me like granola a lot more. Mm -hmm. You can make it like less sweet and more toasty. But then I feel like there's one or two very elaborate meals a week. And then the rest is just kind of what makes sense in the fridge. It Mm. is such a kind of depressing feeling to hit 7 p.m. And you're like, damn, my my fridge again. Totally. For me, it's like (laughs) 515. But yes, totally. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, for sure. (laughs) You've got two kids, right? Yes. At last count, yes. I was reading something and I was just thinking about shopping for a family of four. I mean, it is the universe away from what people without kids are living. I mean, even just the cooking aspect, it's for a week. How many meals is that? I mean, that's... I don't know. It's cruise ship level. There's no more to it. No, we literally order Annie's mac and cheese on the internet. Like we have to buy the like maximum possible allowance. Um, Remind me how many weeks along you are. Oh, it's so funny. When I saw you guys in, I guess, when was that? Mid-January, early January? Yeah, you were like tiny speck not telling people. I was, I think. I might have been like six weeks pregnant. Yeah. I was truly at the depths of like, my body feels newly horrible and I don't know what to do. Yeah. So now I'm at 27 weeks. Are you in a fun eating place in pregnancy? Well, actually, I threw up a lot the first trimester, but I was hungrier than I've ever been in my life. There's a Chipotle on my block in New York, and I went to Chipotle like four times a week because I was like, where else can I get this much food this quickly? And it's good, honestly. I relate so deeply. To that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that has actually helped with feeling grateful. With all this that we're talking, we're sick of our own cooking. I think like there's still this kind of backbeat of gratitude. We at least have control over what we're eating. We can create these little pleasures for ourselves whenever we do decide to get it up and make a good meal. Yeah. And I think that being in a place of heightened craving has been nice. Like one thing that I've been doing is making myself a batch of cinnamon rolls every couple of weeks and then freezing the cinnamon rolls after they rise and then defrosting one and then like glazing it afterwards. I'm an always an all day snacker. And right now I mostly feel like my appetite is just like what it would be in normal life if I were really active, which I'm not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not quite that like early pregnancy thing where you're just every hour you're so hungry, but also kind of nauseated. And you're like, if you don't eat, I'm going to faint. Like now it's much more like I'm just hungry all the time. And that's, that's nice. In my first trimester of my first pregnancy, I was on a film festival tour. And so we were going to all these film screenings and it was actually like the perfect intervaling of time because every time we got out of a movie, it would be about two hours and I would just have to go eat a sandwich or four slices of pizza. And then I would go to another movie and then I would go to Subway again. Totally. Totally. I'm outside the city right now and I have gone back. Friends have been staying in my apartment in Brooklyn. Friends with roommates have been able to stay there and chill and isolate. But you know, every time we've gone back, it's like this cartoonish binge of just food I did not prepare myself. Just the car becomes full of bagels and Thai food and just, you know, I've never had so much appreciation. Like I've never craved the worst possible sliced pizza. I could imagine I've never craved it more, you know? (laughs) I mean, the worst possible 
Yeah, the worst possible slice of pizza in New York, too, is better than all the pizza in California combined. Right, it's so tight, yeah. Brooklyn <laughs> yeah. Care Package. Uh, yeah, just to pick up like a greasy Parmesan without thinking about the, you know, just totally. the red pepper flakes and just yeah, not thinking about washing your hands afterwards because you never would. <laughs> Well, that's one of the interesting things, too, about sheltering in place. There are some people who seem to document all their food exploits, but like, it turns out that there's also a lot of pleasure to be gotten out of a really shitty slice of pizza that you haven't had. The little by the slice joint down the street from me reopened, and I'm like, I can't wait to go. But I'm not going to document that on Instagram (laughs) because it's really unspectacular, (laughs) but it's exactly the unspectacularity of it where I'm like, yeah, this is right. I can finally do this again. Yeah, I mean... I think in general, right, this period is marked by this kind of overwhelming appreciation for even things about ordinary life that you would have previously found, like, incredibly irritating. Recently, I was like, I would pay everything I'm going to get paid this week to stand in line for an hour to get into a bar, right. you know, and and t- I would do anything to just be trying to get a bartender's attention for 45 minutes you know (laughs) so i was thinking about food and women yeah as it relates to like beyond just the COVID era you're someone who has often written about being someone who like takes a lot of joy in food and like being at least publicly unapologetic about that and i was curious how that plays into your friendships yeah it's interesting because it's so complicated, right? And I feel really aware that one of the reasons that I have been able to have a really uncomplicated and enthusiastic relationship with food is that I have a really high metabolism and I have never had my appetite policed, mm-hmm. you know, or my, really my body policed in, in mm-hmm. a way that so mm-hmm. many people have had to. Yes. And at the same time, it's like, there's got to be a way to express this pleasure in a way that is aware of that. Like, there's nothing more annoying than the, like, you know, the thing where it's a profile of some celebrity and it's like some supermodel and they're like oh she's eating a cheeseburger that attitude is not cute I'm never trying to be like oh like look how much I eat but at the same time food is genuinely my boyfriend told me the other day it was crazy we're talking in quarantine and he was like do you have cravings like every day and I was like what yes Mm -hmm. and he was like I never I don't crave specific foods unless I'm hungover and I was like oh I crave specific foods every day. It's like I organize my days around thinking what I'm going to eat next. I think I'm very pleasure oriented in a lot of ways in food. Mm -hmm. It's like reading. I mean, these two things where you can be in the mood for something and you can satisfy your desires in a way that's healthy. Mm -hmm. There are so few things in life that you can identify a desire and meet it instantly whenever you want or, you know, within reason or whatever, you can approximate it. And it seems like you can do that with food and pop culture to some degree, and for me, mostly just books. So anyway, almost all of my close female friends for a long time have been, you know, big stoners and big eaters mm-hmm. <laughs> with different experiences with their body, with different experiences of feeling like they needed to watch their weight. Let's say the concept is ridiculous, but feeling like they needed to or whatever. Sure. I think that even just the orientation around pleasure, and I think the orientation around identifying and meeting your needs wherever you can, for some reason, that's a big thread. And so it hasn't even been within the realm of the awkward sort of, are you just going to get a salad vibe? I haven't had that in any of my friendships for a long time. And sometimes I wonder if that is another way in which I live in a bubble. Yeah. Like I remember reading some Times op-ed where it was like, you know, that thing where you sit down with a bunch of women and everyone's policing what the other person's eating. And I was like, no, I actually really don't. I don't know that anymore. I haven't known that since maybe high school. And that seems like a really lucky thing. 
Do you feel like that kind of unvarnished enjoyment of food and the ability to connect to food as an uncomplicated source of pleasure. Like when you look back at your upbringing, do you feel like that's something that was modeled for you by your mom or anything else? Cause that feels related, right? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. 100%. I mean, I eat so fast. Like it's repulsive, you know, like I eat like a dog at its bowl. <laughs> You know, it's like really embarrassing. I feel like we've eaten together and I can't entirely confirm this. I've eaten this. with you. I don't think it's quite that bad. Well, when you ate with me, I was brimming with nausea. And sitting next to like half of Stanford's humanities administration. But yeah. Yeah. And actually a couple of conversations at that dinner have like led me down really lingering places. I was like, oh yeah, this is why these dinners are great. But yeah, my boyfriend once said that I eat like someone's trying to take my food away, (laughs) which is um, embarrassing, but true. Is there truth to that? Like, is there psychological truth to that? I don't think so. But insofar as that may be rooted in my childhood, it is rooted in the fact that I can be a messy eater. Like I like get food on me. Both of my parents, they love to eat and my mom can't cook at all. My dad loves to cook and my brother does too. So I mostly got it from him. My mom literally cannot cook a meal. That's how I learned to cook early. She sort of tricked me into thinking that it was this very fun adult thing. That's genius. That is really brilliant. I think it was a little like shady of her to be like, no, Gia, you're not grown up enough to touch that. And I was like, yes, I am. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. You know, and then I like learned to cook. So smart. Great. Yeah, but it's paid off because it's like, it is good for kids to at least learn how to keep themselves alive if a parent is too late getting back from the store or whatever. And, but they both love food a lot. They told me that when I was really, really young, they never tried to get me to eat politely, let's say at age four or five or whenever you need to kind of not eat like a baby anymore. They told me that they never tried to get me to eat politely because they're aware of me being a girl and wanting me to really just love food and not think about the way I ate it and just kind of wolf it down like a monster. Mm-hmm. And I'm really, I'm grateful for that. It's like one of those things, I don't know, Laura, if you ever, you know, when you're a teenager and you're kind of trying to like look hot for the first time and it's like kind of bad, <laughs> like. Very intimately, I know. You know, yes. <laughs> like, like it's like maybe like what you're wearing to the eighth grade dance is kind of whack. Decisions you're making with your body glitter or whatever it is are just a little whack, Mm -hmm. you know? It's one thing that I'm really grateful for about the way that the many things that I'm grateful for about the way my parents raised me is if I was going out in some totally repulsive, like overly tight outfit, they never said, do you want to cover up? They were just like, you know what? We'll let you learn what equilibrium you want to reach on your own. And I totally did. And so I never felt weird about my body, about showing it too much, about not showing it enough. I mean, it's such a rare experience, I think, to be able to grow up thinking of your body as a source of pleasure, I guess, for women. Like what an immense privilege that was. A stroke of arbitrary luck and a privilege. Well, what you're describing is a series of small decisions that your parents made not to police your body. Yeah, totally. Eating and terms Even though, of like, dressing. I kind of wish I could, you know, cut food a little more politely now, but... <laughs> But it's, you know, small casualties, small casualties. Yeah. Can I ask, what's your relationship to leftovers? So I always knew this is an intergenerational thing. My parents are both, they grew up with hunger. And so you can't finish a sentence before the food's all gone on their plates. But they're also extremely allergic to leftovers. Interesting. What's your relationship to leftovers? I love leftovers. There's this Julia Tertian cookbook, right? Now and again, and it's somewhat leftover centric. Like each recipe comes with a set of sort of leftover transformations you can make. Another one of my favorite, have y'all read, um, 
Tamar Adler's An Everlasting Meal. Have y'all ever read that? No. No. Oh my God. This is one of my favorite, favorite books about food ever. She lays out this way of cooking that is so respectful. It's so economical. It's so respectful of the work that goes into growing food. It's very aspirational for me in that it's a way of cooking in which absolutely nothing is wasted. You can have a meal that's made of just bread and cheese and a beer and you're just on top of the world. Yeah, I I absolutely love that book. And I think I love leftovers. One thing that I've been missing in quarantine is the ability to make just a giant meal and feed a bunch of your friends offhandedly. I didn't realize because I don't think of myself as someone that loves to cook for people, even though I do. But it's like my apartment in Brooklyn literally fits four chairs in it. I can't really have dinner parties, but I like to cook for my friends and I do it a lot when we're not in New York. You know, you can't make like a huge hunk of meat for one person, two people, and you really miss the ability to share and cook for other people and like sit down to a big table and like have everyone pour wine. I like leftovers a lot, but I'm big on transforming them. Like I can't eat the same exact dinner more than two days in a row. I think that's exactly how I experience it too, that there's something very Protestant about wanting to revisit the same meal over and over because it's just like sustenance. The transformation of it is so important because you're like, yes, I may be consuming the exact same things, but in a different configuration. This time I fried it. And it's like psychologically super important to me. Yeah, well, there's something like metaphorically important about that right now, right? Where it's like every day we have a set of circumstances, the set of ingredients for any given day is extremely fixed and monotonous even. You just have to tilt the angle just a little bit. And then suddenly it's wonderful, right? Like suddenly you feel lucky and suddenly everything is beautiful. Like I think the act of leftover transformation is very, it's like existentially fruitful for me. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm thinking, Adrian, about your characterization of eating the same thing over and over again as Protestant, because aesthetically, in terms of the definition of Protestant, I agree with you. But like my Catholic mother will eat. She I'm thinking of a particular Greek restaurant in Minneapolis that we go to will get this platter that's like a gyro platter. And it comes with gyros and pita and tzatziki and like rice and a little salad and like She'll take this whole thing home and by day two, like all of the good stuff will be gone. You know, like the gyro meat is gone. The pita is gone. The tzatziki is gone. Mm-hmm. And she will eat the like crumbly crappy rice for like another five days after that. So just for the record, my Catholic mother is very committed to sameness and leftovers. <laughs> if we're to be religiously accurate. It reminds me of just like the Soylent vibe. <laughs> totally. You know, (laughs) nothing confuses me more. Why would you deny yourself the single most reliable source of daily novelty? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, genuinely, it's like even in normal life, most of your days are kind of whatever. The thing that switches up is your food. (laughs) Totally. Well, getting back to the gender politics of food and domestic labor a little bit, you mentioned that when you were growing up, your dad was the one who did the cooking, not your mom, right? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you saw that play out and how, if at all, that's resonated in your own division of domestic labor? Yeah, it's funny. I definitely never thought about it, but I think maybe growing up with my dad taking so much pleasure in cooking, like the first time I really thought about my own role in sort of generic domestic gender configurations. Because I also like to cook. And when I was in the Peace Corps, I mean, Peace Corps was so much like quarantine, except I had no internet. (laughs) That's really where I learned to cook for real. 
because my best friend in the Peace Corps was this amazing woman named Lola who had been a sous chef in a restaurant in San Francisco and she was French and she could just make anything without a recipe. And we would spend very long hours together and she would just teach me how to make like basic doughs without recipe, you know, and I would get this sort of instinctive sense for how you could show up at a market in the dead of winter and there would be absolutely nothing and you could figure out some way to make something that would be exciting. So I got back home from Peace Corps and I was still cooking all the time, like as sort of a holdover pastime as a way to feel useful to myself was just the thing I did for stress relief. I'd moved straight back in with my boyfriend who I'm still with now, and this is 2011. And he was in the studio all the time because he was in architecture for grad school. And so I was making all these elaborate meals because it's just what I had been doing for the last year. And because he was really busy and didn't have time to cook. So I'd make all these elaborate meals. I panicked though, you know, like a couple months into it, I panicked because I was also rediscovering the internet and I was rediscovering, I think, the world of sort of domestic blogging that I think was coming up around then. I was seeing sort of the Pinteresty aspirationality of women in their 20s creating a cozy domestic space. I had a freak out all of a sudden. I was like, wait, this is not right. I, I, I don't know. Like I had this big panic about it. About what specifically? About just that you're slotting yourself into something like that? or Well, yeah, that I was just spending all day and taking all this pleasure cooking and that I just come back from Peace Corps and moved in with my boyfriend. And, and I was like, oh, no, like, am I doing this? Am I like, I, it was just very confusing. And probably some sort of childhood resistance came up. I really feel like kids, to me, seems like the true test of domestic labor division, just because it seems like there's just going to be so much more of it. And until now, like Andrew and I have a pretty even, I would say like a dead even split in terms of household responsibility. Like he cooks maybe a third of the time, maybe a quarter of the time, but he does like all of the, like he builds everything, fixes everything, you know, and and, and I like scrub all the surfaces, you know? <laughs> and like, as of now, it feels like it's chosen and natural rather than enforced, but I am interested to know how it's going to work out once kids enter the equation and like some things maybe can't be chosen and some things are biologically forced yeah. on me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also it's like, I like to shop because I'm better at shopping than he is. And I'm like, oh, this is how it happens. You're better at scheduling. You're better at shopping. You're better at meal planning. And then you just do it, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that you bring up the domestic bloggers because that's sort of an innovation that if we had been all sheltered in place, you know, 20 years ago, we wouldn't have had the fact that we are pretty used to remediating our own domestic sphere in some kind of sugar-coated version, but in some version of it via our Insta story, via mm -hmm. our Facebook, the good, the bad, the funny, which is what your book Trick Mirror is in some extent about, the way we sort of construct selves in the social media age. But of course, you're absolutely right that in some way, that's kind of a user surface. That's where we present to the world and it may not actually accurately reflect what kind of imperatives are running behind behind the scenes yeah so you're describing how the dynamics play out in the household how does the presentation of them turn out mm. how do you find yourself presenting it on social media on twitter that kind of thing that's interesting well i actually don't really present it much on social media it's mm. funny i mean i did a ton of publicity around when my book came out to a point of it i mean Basically in November, I was like, I'm not, I cannot do any more publicity ever again. Like, I, I think I make myself very present in whatever I do show. 
like probably to a fault even, like probably to a point that I don't even necessarily have a handle on. Mm -hmm. But that being said, it's like, so you write about yourself, the things that you do show, you can show in such tremendous detail that it seems like people are seeing a lot more of you than they actually are. You know, and I think I'm like that with social media. Ever since at least I started at The New Yorker, I, you know, it's like I tweet once every three days, maybe I Instagram maybe once every week. I don't use Instagram stories. Like I never take pictures of my food. I try not to take pictures of the inside of my house very much. And there was a way in which these very mundane aspects of your life, the way that they got brought into promotional interviews, right? it felt totally fine but also felt not like the way that I could ever live constantly. Like I could never be talking people through my daily routine. Right. It's interesting. The way you articulated it is making me think these are things that I would so, I mean, as with a lot of things, I would much rather inhabit them than present them. And it's like, nowhere is that more important to me than in something like cooking, right. Or having your hands on your own life. Like you have to experience it and presenting it in a sort of, monetized, even quasi-monetized capacity feels like garbage. I've been very careful to be, you know, let's say it's like a magazine that's like, you know, let's do a thing on your apartment. I was like, no, like, I'm just absolutely not going to do that. I'm not going to do like lifestyle stuff. I did like a handful of those things around my book. And then after that, I was like, no, no more. You can not do this again. One thing that I found interesting about this pandemic, it's like, obviously, you know, the, the glossy versions of this kind of domestic lifestyle that are presented to large audiences. Like there's so much hidden labor, right? It's like, who's cleaning your house? Who's delivering your groceries? Who is shopping for your groceries? There's so much production work that is required to present things aspirationally. Like it hooks you into this chain of labor Mm -hmm. that generally I try not to partake in because I'm lucky enough not to have to, you know, like don't have, you know, a lot of extenuating circumstances that require me to rely on chains of outside labor. Right. And it's interesting. Like, I think it became a bit of a thing among some influencers just trying to figure out how to clean their house, you know, (laughs) to get it looking the way it has to, to take photographs in it all the time. And it's interesting the way that this period has made just, I don't know, the labor of like caregiving and maintenance really visible and really urgent in a way that I hope sticks kind of. I mean, not kind of, like, I mean, absolutely. But I I, I say kind of, because I'm not sure. Like, I I wonder if this will end and everyone will be like, oh, I just want to get back to ordering everything through an app and not having my hands on my life at all. Like, it's sort of like with writing. I like the actual work of it. And I kind of like, it's kind of nice to clean your house. I don't know. (laughs) Well, yeah, but at the same time, I think gender kind of creeps into our new DIY life in two ways, right? On the one hand, COVID is kind of forcing especially middle-class women and and men as well to do the kind of work that, as you say, that we previously kind of outsourced. But at the same time, it seems to kind of reinforce the sense that like anyone can do this. Like I've literally had this thought, oh, I can pickle. Like how awesome is that? Yeah, but can you pickle as well as the professional pickler? (laughs) Exactly. Well, I can't. But it's interesting in that on the one hand, it has, I think, the very, very positive effect that you're highlighting that it makes visible just how dependent 
like childcare, right? I mean, but even right. though, yeah, it's like... Yeah, how dependent all that is on outside labor. At the same time, it does kind of, I think, kind of contribute to the de-skilling as well. And that we're all like, oh, we mm. can do this well enough, right? Surely, you know, surely this, and this can't be quite mysterious as it's cracked up to be. Uh-huh. I, I, I'm always wondering about this. Yeah. To me, my guess is that that will be divided, like skill by skill, this will be very different, right? I assume that any parent who ever thought that daycare was easy, right? It's probably like, I would pay you a million dollars if I could. I hope that with certain things that people could outsource, but were often outsourced in ways that were exploitative, maybe if people come out of this not outsourcing everything for convenience or something or respecting the labor required enough to pay people better... Like, for example, okay, like people, I wouldn't know because I don't really do my nails, but I'm assuming that there are a lot of people out there who are like desperate to get just a good manicure and pedicure. I would think that that's the kind of thing that you can't really do to your, I mean, I've done my nails myself. Like, I think that's the kind of thing where people are just dramatically across the board, really underpaid for that kind of work. And people being like, I would pay a hundred dollars to get my nails done right now. You know, I have this stupid dream that maybe you would leave this and like, if we would pay that, then that's what people deserve to get paid, right? The fact that we can do it ourselves means that when we outsource that labor, we ought to pay $100. Probably, yeah. And just like with pickles, right? It's like we can make our own pickles and maybe we should most of the time. But when you really want to get that really nice pickle, maybe it's worth paying someone a lot for the pickles they hand make or something. Yeah. One of the things that drives me so crazy, like one of my least favorite ads in New York City is that there's like a subway ad for whatever that app is, Handy. Handy, the worst named startup in history. I know. (laughs) I know, but it's also like clean your whole apartment for $35. And it's like, what? Oh, wow. It's, yeah, it's horrible. It's like- That shouldn't exist. Yeah, and they're like, oh, it's so wonderful. And I was like, oh, no, (laughs) like that's that's really bad. Yeah. And maybe like if people get sick of having to spend four hours every Sunday- scrubbing their floors, they'll realize that's garbage pay for work that's really, really hard. Hard both in the sense of like a craft level of skill and physically exhausting. Absolutely. I mean, really good cleaning is, yeah, and it's true. Like cleaning well is like Oh my God. Yeah, (laughs) totally. I mean, I vacuumed, I don't know what time is anymore, but sometime in the recent past I vacuumed and it probably took me 45 minutes to get in all the corners and everything. And I finished, I had like serious under boob sweat and like just, it was a bad scene. You know, it's physically oh, taxing yeah. work as well it's as hard. skilled work. Yeah. And it's skilled. Like truly getting in all the places that I, right? that I'm always like, it's fine. I don't need to look at that corner. And then when you're home all day and you're like, oh, actually my body is a disgusting meat bag that is shedding hairs everywhere. <laughs> like, you know, like actually. Your pube or mine. <laughs> right. Exactly. This is exactly what happened to me when I watched one of the first Saturday Night Live episodes that they did from home. Yeah. And Tom Hanks's house. Yeah. It's so spotless. I'm like, you didn't do this. I had at that point done my own floors for like months. And I was like, I know that dust bunnies are never fully eradicable. They will always be as asymptotic. You will always approach dust bunny freedom, but you will never quite get there. And he did. And so I knew he had gotten professional help. Jacuzzi Tom Hanks. I think there are a lot of people quarantined with help, right? Oh. Yeah. With staffs. Yeah. Wow. Whew. What a life. Yeah. (laughs) You were saying something really profound earlier that I'm connecting within this sort of aegis of public and private that we're talking about. You were talking about something that I relate to and have heard a lot of other nonfiction writers, especially women nonfiction writers, talk about, which is that when you write a personal essay, and especially if you write autobiographical material that breaks any taboos, right, where you openly acknowledge casual drug use or you openly acknowledge sex or whatever, 
people are suddenly like, oh, Gia, that taboo breaker, she owes me everything. Like she must explain every aspect of her life, Mm -hmm. you know? And so when you were talking about the exhaustion and the tension of publicity, I was also thinking about basically the inappropriate public thirst for every detail of a life, you know, wherein what you've actually made available to the public is an incredibly detailed portrait of a very small slice of your life. And then the public conflates that with an incredibly detailed portrait of your entire life that you have never granted them. Yeah. One thing that I'm also fully aware of is I feel responsible for this paradigm that I've walked myself into, right? Really, it's a personality thing that has become like fundamental to my professional life in a way that I've only been understanding the implications of that in the past year, because I, Mm -hmm. you know, for so long, I was just taking every writing assignment I could and just trying to stay employed and didn't think of myself as really like, I was just doing what felt natural and not really thinking about it. And then, you know, it's like, if self-disclosure buoys your career, right? If self-disclosure is the thing that people are drawn to in your work, a primary thing that people are drawn to is the way that you unveil yourself, it's sort of like you have to be, you you don't have to be responsible for all of the extremely volatile ways that can manifest and have manifested for me quite recently. But, but also I have to understand this is a paradigm I've walked myself into at my own benefit. Like, I mean, I've always not wanted self-revelation to be like a crutch. I've always been afraid of that you get afraid that you begin to rely on something too much. But lately I've sort of been like, I don't think it's correct that the way that like a woman writing about herself personally becomes holistically fair game for the worst of the internet. But it's like, if you've made yourself fair game for the best and most amplificatory parts of it, then maybe, I mean, basically what I'm saying is like, I'm trying to think of a way to lower my profile (laughs) and still be able to write. I'm sort of thinking like, how do I need to write differently? Do I need to explicitly seek out subjects that I have no personal relationship to? Or like, maybe I should start stretching myself in that way. I think that's super interesting because I'm wondering if to some extent the self-disclosure through food that we're seeing on social media a lot these days isn't kind of kind of a similar uh-huh. strategy. A way of self-revelation without full exposure. On the one hand, of course, I think you mentioned the domestic bloggers earlier. This is a mode of self-disclosure. But of course, also taking a picture of your sourdough loaf is a way of not taking a picture of everything else in your home. It's a controlled release. Right. Yeah. It is a way of saying, this is what I give you. It came out of an oven. That's all you're getting. Yeah. Yeah, everything sucks right now, but it sucks for everyone. And I'm not going to talk to you about it. Here's a loaf of bread. Could be that we're all... super desperate to share just about every shit that we do because we're just so cooped up and stir crazy. But it's also possible that we're using this to kind of say, look, you know what's going on behind the scenes. It's going on for everyone. Feast your eyes on this loaf. You know, I think there are some people who have been tired of people's sort of like food talk on social media, but I love it. Yeah, right. You know, I love it. I want to know what my friends ate for lunch and dinner. Like one of the things that I find most endearing about one of my group texts is someone will be like, just had a great piece of cheese oh, never will be yeah. like tell me more about that piece of cheese and then it'll just be describing that piece of cheese you know it's it's this yeah, almost like happen. yeah it's almost this pornographic like send me a close-up of that grease on that pepperoni girl <laughs> you know and then you do it and everyone's like posting like cum emojis but it's like 
I want to know what people are eating. <laughs> totally. And then for me, add the shelter in place aspect to it. And like, yeah. you know, my best friend, Jess, who I talk to 45 times a day, will text me, be like, I just got back from the grocery store. And I'm like, tell me yeah. everything slowly and yeah. in detail. How did people yeah. behave? What did you buy? Were there coupons? Exactly. What's for dinner tonight? <laughs> like, yes, I want pornographic yeah, details. Like on Zoom, it was funny within the first couple of weeks, many of my friends, like we resorted to this almost like zoo animal behavior where we just began showing each other objects in the room and being like, Hey, check out this uh, dog hair brush I got. And then, you know, just like showing and we were just very much like zoo animals trying to amuse each other. <laughs> like I love the New York mad grub street diet feature. I like, it's sort of like in the, by the book feature in the times, it's like people are a lot more honest about who they are sideways. I think often Especially right now when, you know, I mean, it's just basically really hard to answer the question, how are you? I was just editing this interview that I had done with the musician Waxahachie. Have y'all listened to that album? Yes. But, oh my fact, God. It's yes. Yeah. So, no, it's so wasn't it you who tweeted good. something about, about wishing, wishing. to be at a concert? Yeah. yeah. I felt well, that tweet in my bones. That album more than any album. And I was, I mean, I was just writing about it, but it's like, it feels like this really, really potent reminder of like everyday continuity and negotiating kind of interpersonal fluctuations in each other's presence and just, you know, like I missed so much just getting a friend a beer. All I want is to get a friend a beer right now. <laughs> anyway, but so she was about to go on tour. Like the album came out like March 20th. Oh God. It's a huge bummer. And you know, that's a real bummer. It's her best album, but it's this like landmark. She's like, I've been trying to allow myself to be sad because reflexively right now, you know, you ask people how they are. And most of my friends are fortunate enough to be able to work inside their homes and everyone's just screaming, I'm so lucky, but like also they might've been crying all day, <laughs> you know, right. but everyone just defaults to screaming. I'm so lucky because we are. And anyway, like I think things like talking about your food or whatever weird encounter you had at the grocery store, it's like a lot easier to talk about how you're really feeling that way or something. You just reminded me that during the Christine Blasey Ford month in what was that October 2018? Yeah, I, I remember like it well. In full PTSD incapacitation for that entire month, like it was one of the worst months yeah. of my life, and I think many women's yeah. lives. Man, that was bad. it was really bad. But that's the, when I first started thinking Trump was going to win again. Ugh, I can't. I, I can't. I, I, I know. I sorry. Sorry to sorry to say that. I know. Uh, I know. No, I know. What I, I was going to say was the only thing I could write that month was a piece for InStyle about how enraged I was at how many women described themselves to me as lucky. <laughs> like I just could not yeah. deal. Oh, you know what? I remember that piece. Yeah, I was feeling that too. Yeah, yeah, and I too was describing myself I was as lucky. Too. I was too. We're so lucky. We're still alive. We're so lucky. Right. We got. I think what I said was like, you know, lucky right. means getting raped in college and not in prison. You know. Like, yes, there right. is a there is a valence of luck to that, but like by someone you know right, and not right, a stranger. Right. So, like, are we supposed to, you know, like, oh. yes, it's important to acknowledge privilege always. Yes, it's important to interrogate that in detail always. But is there an element of this like sort of performance of luckiness that also obscures real emotional truths? So, right. You know, like my answer to how are you doing lately to people that I'm at least comfortable with enough to be colloquial with is I've just been like I'm better than someone who's in the middle of a root canal, but like not as good as like someone who didn't need a root canal. Yeah. 
Like that's about No, we were talking about this while I was at Stanford too. Like I think we were talking about how in our professional industries, the knowledge that to even be trying to play the game is extremely lucky has stood in the way of a lot of on the ground organizing and Mm -hmm. protests that needs to happen internally. There are a lot of things about writing in academia that when people don't want to organize for better working conditions, they're like, we're already so lucky. And it's true, but also there's a way in which that acknowledgement seals off the possibility of wanting more. And I guess I've been thinking about that in terms of just socialism generally. Yeah. Does this constant performance of gratitude actually add a layer of complacency? You know, if we're so performing gratitude, does that mean we're not agitating enough? Or a a guilt or or just a lack of political imagination, maybe, right? Right. Like, I think it becomes an endpoint and not what it should be, which is a means being like, all right, if we're so lucky, then we must have some leverage to do some shit that we're not doing right now, right? Exactly. But then it's like, especially tough right now, because you're like, damn, I'm in New York. I want to be in fucking Minneapolis, you know, but I'm not like all you can do is, I mean, luckily there are all these bail funds that, you know, all these things we still can do, but there is something kind of particularly knotted about the state we're in right now where like, I don't know, I've been feeling like so conscious of luck and being like, how do you use it? And you can phone bank, but you can't go door to door, right? Like all these things. I think that COVID has made this also pretty clear that we, we've been conflating luck and virtualness to some extent, right? If the things only mm-hmm. get to you indirectly, mm-hmm. it's okay, mm-hmm. right? And of course, like, yeah, it's much better than having to be directly on the receiving end of it. But you can, of course, in the Trump era, be on the receiving end of things that never really do reach your doorstep, but ultimately do really negatively affect your life. And I think that's kind of interesting, too, that COVID has sort of brought that home, right? Just because you're not there doesn't make you mm-hmm. the exception, does sort of implicate you at the same time. Right. It doesn't It doesn't save you for implication on either end. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Right, right. There is a way in which the I'm so lucky reflex right now maybe functions as like a protective barrier, right? Right. Acknowledging a protective barrier puts up one that doesn't need to be there or something. Like mm-hmm. acknowledging the luck of physical separation might create like a false sense of civic or I don't know. Yeah. Well, if we're trying to use privilege for good and also mm-hmm. in this time of like deep truncations in the media industry and deep instability and in- Oh, it's the worst. It's garbage. It's such garbage. Did you see that onion piece that was like uh these protesters are gonna loot, they should at least form a private equity firm first or whatever. Sure did. Sure so did good. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, I mean, sorry. From Minneapolis. So oh like yeah, that's right. Been- But I was going to say, are there any writers who you don't think are getting enough attention right right now that you want to shout out? Mm. Well, one of my good friends, Cleo Chang, was part of the big Vice layoffs, and she had been crushing this reporting on just all throughout COVID. I mean, she did a piece that I, that actually Bernie retweeted it. It was sick where she compared the life of, you know, someone in the States that was trying to navigate unemployment with the life of someone in Germany that was, Ooh, and, you know, I saw it was that. vastly, vastly different. I don't know. There have just been so many people. The Atlantic was doing such a good job with coronavirus coverage oh, and like everyone yeah. got it's fucking owned by Lorian Jobs. It just like. Shout out to Ed Young. Yeah. I yeah. mean, shout out to Ed Young. Yeah, for sure. Oof. 
right on. It's nice to catch up with you. And I would love to maybe do a follow-up episode on domestic labor after your baby is born. <laughs> we can check back in on how. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. Scorecard. <laughs> <laughs> to his enormous credit, like when I first told him that like the test, he like loves babies. He burst into tears of happiness, but then he hugged me and he was like, are you okay? Oh, good man. <laughs> and I was like, thank oh, you. Man. He was like, I know that this will be bittersweet for your freedom. <laughs> and I, I was like, yeah, you know, it will. That's really But good. actually, I really found the physical experience has been a lot more like centering and calming than I thought it was going to be. I I really wasn't Mm. expecting that. It's been really nice to have Mm. this physical reminder of kind of the logic of time or something. I certainly never thought that I'd be writing out a sober quarantine. Oh yeah, that aspect of it hadn't occurred to me. Oh wow. I'm so sorry, Gia. But it's actually kind of, well, well, I've also sort of been sleeping better. I'm like, Wait, oh. <laughs> wait. <laughs> oh no. Like, has my lifetime of insomnia also been connected to my lifetime of enthusiasm for wine and weed? I mean, not the weed part. No. I will not blame weed no. for a goddamn thing. There's no science to support The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It is produced by Laura Good and Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in the Building Named for a Woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. We are especially grateful there to our feminist colleagues, Cynthia Newberry, Alison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, and Sarah Mersney. The Podfather is R. Lanier Anderson, Senior Associate Dean of Humanities and Sciences. Funding for this podcast is very much not provided by the following product services and entities. Blue Apron. Hymns, Casper Mattresses, the Trump administration, and that stupid wine club started by two MIT grads. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We are at Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and shoot us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. No rape or death threats, fellas. Stanford has really good IT support, and we will find you. We'd appreciate it so much if you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars, on iTunes to help other folks join our discussion. Take good care out there.